Chapter Four of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Chapter Four: Men and Brothers. Oh, my friends, the downtrodden operatives of Coketown! Oh, my friends and fellow-countrymen, the slaves of an iron-handed and grinding despotism! Oh, my friends and fellow-sufferers, and fellow-workmen, and fellow-men, I tell you that the hour is come! when we must rally round one another as one united power, and crumble into dust the oppressors that too long have battened upon the plunder of our families, upon the sweat of our brows, upon the labour of our hands, upon the strength of our sinews, upon the God-created glorious rights of humanity and upon the holy and eternal privileges of brotherhood. Good! Good! Here, here, here! Hurrah! Hurrah! And other cries arose in many voices from various parts of the densely crowded and suffocatingly close hall, in which the orator, perched on a stage, delivered himself of this and what other froth and fume he had in him, he had declaimed himself in a violent heat, and was as hoarse as he was hot. By dint of roaring at the top of his voice under a flaring gaslight, clenching his fists, knitting his brows, setting his teeth, and pounding with his arms, he had taken so much out of himself by this time that he was brought to a stop and called for a glass of water. As he stood there, trying to quench his fiery face with his drink of water, the comparison between the orator and the crowd of attentive faces turned towards him was extremely to his disadvantage. Judging him by nature's evidence, he was above the mass in very little but the stage on which he stood. In many great respects he was essentially below them. He was not so honest, he was not so manly, he was not so good-humoured. He substituted cunning for their simplicity, and passion for their safe, solid sense. An ill-made, high-shouldered man, with lowering brows, and his features crushed into an habitually sour expression, he contrasted most unfavourably, even in his mongrel dress, with the great body of his hearers in their plain working clothes. Strange as it always is to consider any assembly in the act of submissively resigning itself to the dreariness of some complacent person, lord or commoner, whom three-fourths of it could, by no human means, raise out of the slough of inanity to their own intellectual level, it was particularly strange, and it was even particularly affecting, to see this crowd of earnest faces, whose honesty in the main no competent observer free from bias could doubt, so agitated by such a leader. Good! Hear, hear! Hurrah! The eagerness both of attention and intention, exhibited in all the countenances, 
made them a most impressive sight. There was no carelessness, no languor, no idle curiosity, none of the many shades of indifference to be seen in all other assemblies visible for one moment there. That every man felt his condition to be, somehow or other, worse than it might be, that every man considered it incumbent on him to join the rest towards the making of it better, that every man felt his only hope to be in his allying himself to the comrades by whom he was surrounded, and that in this belief, right or wrong, unhappily wrong then, the whole of that crowd were gravely, deeply, faithfully in earnest, must have been as plain to any one who chose to see what was there as the bare beams of the roof and the whitened brick walls nor could any such spectator fail to know in his breast that these men through their very delusions showed great qualities susceptible of being turned into the happiest and best account and that to pretend on the strength of sweeping axioms howsoever cut and dried that they went astray wholly without cause and of their own irrational wills was to pretend that there could be smoke without fire, death without birth, harvest without seed, anything or everything produced from nothing. The orator, having refreshed himself, wiped his corrugated forehead from left to right several times with his handkerchief folded into a pad, and concentrated all his revived forces in a sneer of great disdain and bitterness. But, oh, my friends and brothers, oh, men and Englishmen, the downtrodden operatives of Coketown, what shall we say of that man, that working man, that I should find it necessary so to libel the glorious name, who, being practically and well acquainted with the grievances and wrongs of you, the injured pith and marrow of this land, and having heard you, with a noble and majestic unanimity that will make tyrants tremble, resolve for to subscribe to the funds of the United Aggregate Tribunal, and to abide by the injunctions issued by that body for your benefit, whatever they may be. What, I ask you, will you say of that working man, since such I must acknowledge him to be? who at such a time deserts his post and sells his flag, who at such a time turns a traitor and a craven and a recreant, who at such a time is not ashamed to make to you the dastardly and humiliating avowal that he will hold himself aloof and will not be one of those associated in the gallant stand for freedom and for right, the assembly was divided at this point. There were some groans and hisses, but the general sense of honour was much too strong for the condemnation of a man unheard. Be sure you're right, Slackbridge. Put him up. Let's hear him. Such things were said on many sides. Finally, one strong voice called out, Is the man here? If the man's here, Slackbridge, let's hear the man himself instead of you which was received with a round of applause. Slackbridge, the orator, looked about him with a withering smile, and holding out his right hand at arm's length, 
as the manner of all slack bridges is, to still the thundering sea, waited until there was a profound silence. "'Oh, my friends and fellow-men,' said Slackbridge then, shaking his head with violent scorn, "'I do not wonder that you, the prostrate sons of labour, are incredulous of the existence of such a man. But he who sold his birthright for a mess of pottage existed, and Judas Iscariot existed, and Castlereagh existed, and this man exists.' Here a brief press and confusion near the stage ended in the man himself standing at the orator's side before the concourse. He was pale and a little moved in the face. His lips especially showed it. But he stood quiet, with his left hand at his chin, waiting to be heard. There was a chairman to regulate the proceedings, and this functionary now took the case into his own hand. "'My friends,' said he, "'by virtue of my office as your president, I asks of our friend Slackbridge, who may be a little over-retter in this business, to take his seat. Was this man, Stephen Blackpool, his earn? You all know this man, Stephen Blackpool. You know him along his misfortunes, and his good name.' With that the chairman shook him frankly by the hand, and sat down again. Slackbridge likewise sat down, wiping his hot forehead, always from left to right, and never the reverse way. "'My friends,' Stephen began, in the midst of a dead calm, "'I heard what's been spoken to me, and tis likely I shan't mend it. For Rayford had heard the truth concerning myself, from me lips, than from ony other mons, though I never could speak afore some ony without being moidered and muddled. Slackbridge shook his head as if he would shake it off in his bitterness. I'm one single hand in Bounderby's mill, o'er the men there as don't come in with proposed regulations. I cannot come in with em, my friends. I doubt they're doing you any good. Likely they'll do yet. Slackbridge laughed, folded his arms, and frowned sarcastically. But it ain't so much for that as I stand out. If that were all, I'd come in with rest. But I am a reasons, mine, you see, for being hindered. Not only now, but allers, allers, lifelong. Slackbridge jumped up and stood beside him, gnashing and tearing. Oh, my friends, what but this did I tell you? Oh, my fellow countrymen, what warning but this did I give you? And how shows this recreant conduct in a man on whom unequal laws are known to have fallen heavy? Oh, you Englishmen, I ask you, how does this subornation show in one of yourselves, who is thus consenting to his own undoing and to yours, and to your children's and your children's children's? There was some applause, and some crying of shame upon the man, but the greater part of the audience were quiet. They looked at Stephen's worn face, rendered more pathetic by the homely emotions it evinced, and, in the kindness of their nature, they were more sorry than indignant. "'Tis the delegate's trade for speak,' said Stephen. "'And he's paid for it, and he knows his work. Let him keep to it. Let him give no heed to our eye up at Burr. That's not for him. That's not for nobody but me.' There was a propriety— 
not to say a dignity, in these words, that made the hearers yet more quiet and attentive. The strong voice called out, "'Slackbridge, let the man be here, and hold thee tongue!' Then the place was wonderfully still. "'My brothers,' said Stephen, whose low voice was distinctly heard, "'and my fellow-workmen, for that you are to me, though nor as I knows unto this delegate here, I have but a word to say, and I could send no more if I were to speak till strike a day. I know weel or what's afore me. I know weel that you are resolved to no more ado wi' a man who is nout wi' you in this matter. I know weel that if I was lying perished it road, you'd feel it right to pass me by, as a foreigner and stranger. What I hae gerin, I mun make best on. Stephen Blackpool, said the chairman, rising, think on it again. Think on it once again, lad, afore thou art shunned by our old friends. There was an universal murmur to the same effect, though no man articulated a word. Every eye was fixed on Stephen's face. To repent of his determination would be to take a load from all their minds. He looked around him, and knew that it was so. Not a grain of anger with them was in his heart. He knew them, far below their surface weaknesses and misconceptions, as no one but their fellow labourer could. I have thought on it above a bit, sir. I simply cannot come in. I mun go away as laser for me. I mun take me leave of all here. He made a sort of reverence to them by holding up his arms, and stood for the moment in that attitude, not speaking until they slowly dropped at his sides. Mon is the pleasant word of some here a-sportin with me. Mon is the face I see here, as I first seen when I was young and lighter-hearted than now. I never had no fracks before, since ever I were born, wi' any of me like. Gone all's I none now that's making you call me a traitor in that. You are mean to say, addressing Slackbridge, what's easier to call the mech out, so let be. He had moved away a pace or two to come down from the platform, when he remembered something he had not said, and returned again. Applet, he said, turning his furrowed face slowly about, that he might as it were individually address the whole audience, those both near and distant, Haply, when this question has been taken up and discussed, there'll be a threat to turn out if I'm let to work among you. I hope I shall dee here ever such a time comes, and I shall work solitary among you unless it comes. Truly I'm undo it, my friends, not to brave you, but to live. I am no but work to live by, and wherever can I go? I who has works in a way no height at all in Coketown here. I make no complaints of being turned to away or being outcasting and overlooking from this time forward, for hope I shall be let to work. If there's any right for me at all, my friends, I think tis that. Not a word was spoken. Not a sound was audible in the building but the slight rustle of men moving a little apart, all along the centre of the room, to open a means of passing out to the man with whom they had all bound themselves to renounce companionship. Looking at no one, and going his way with a lowly steadiness upon him that asserted nothing and sought nothing, old Stephen, with all his troubles on his head, 
left the scene. Then Slackbridge, who had kept his oratorical arm extended during the going out, as if he were repressing with infinite solicitude, and by a wonderful moral power, the vehement passions of the multitude, applied himself to raising their spirits. Had not the Roman Brutus, O oh my British countrymen, condemned his son to death, and had not the Spartan mothers, O oh my soon-to-be victorious friends, driven their flying children on the points of their enemies' swords? Then was it not the sacred duty of the men of Coketown, with forefathers before them, an admiring world in company with them, and a posterity to come after them, to hurl out traitors from the tents they had pitched in a sacred and a godlike cause? The winds of heaven answered yes, and bore yes, east, west, north, and south, and consequently three cheers for the united aggregate tribunal. Slackbridge acted as a fugleman, and gave the time. The multitude of doubtful faces, a little conscience-stricken, brightened at the sound and took it up. Private feeling must yield to the common cause. Hurrah! The roof yet vibrated with the cheering when the assembly dispersed. Thus easily did Stephen Blackpool fall into the loneliest of lives, the life of solitude among a familiar crowd. The stranger in the land who looks into ten thousand faces for some answering look, and never finds it, is in cheering society, as compared with him who passes ten averted faces daily that were once the countenances of friends. Such experience was to be Stephen's now, in every waking moment of his life, at his work, on his way to it and from it, at his door, at his window, everywhere. By general consent they even avoided that side of the street on which he habitually walked, and left it, of all the working men, to him only. He had been for many years a quiet, silent man, associating but little with other men, and used to companionship with his own thoughts. He had never known before the strength of the want in his heart for the frequent recognition of a nod, a look, a word or the immense amount of relief that had been poured into it by drops through such small means. It was even harder than he could have believed possible to separate in his own conscience his abandonment by all his fellows from a baseless sense of shame and disgrace. The first four days of his endurance were days so long and heavy that he began to be appalled by the prospect before him. Not only did he see no Rachel all the time, but he avoided every chance of seeing her, for although he knew that the prohibition did not yet formally extend to the women working in the factories, he found that some of them with whom he was acquainted were changed to him, and he feared to try others, and dreaded that Rachel might even be singled out from the rest if she were seen in his company. So he had been quite alone during the four days, and had spoken to no one, when, as he was leaving his work at night, a young man of a very light complexion accosted him in the street. "'Your name's Blackpool, ain't it?' said the young man, 
Stephen colored to find himself with his hat in his hand, in his gratitude for being spoken to, or in the suddenness of it, or both. He made a feint of adjusting the lining, and said, Yes. You are their hand they have sent to Coventry, I mean, said Bitzer, the very light young man in question. Stephen answered, Yes. Again. I supposed so, from their all appearing to keep away from you. Mr. Bounderby wants to speak to you. You know his house, don't you? Stephen said, Yes. Again. Then go straight up there, will you? said Bitzer. You're expected and have only to tell the servant it's you. I belong to the bank, so if you go straight up without me, I, I was sent to fetch you. Then you'll save me a walk. Stephen, whose way had been in the contrary direction, turned about and betook himself, as in duty bound, to the red-brick castle of the giant Bounderby. End of chapter 4